Two years ago, I participated in the Youth Cultural Exchange Program at this church. I traveled to Leon, Nicaragua, and stayed there for two weeks with other youth from our community. Each of the youth stayed with a family who had a kid our age. I stayed with the Chavarias, and their daughter's name was Tanya. The experience was nothing short of wonderful, and I wish I could go back. Tanya's father was a lawyer, and her mom sold soda from their freezer. Their house was smaller than my living room. During my stay, we did many fun things, including climbing a volcano, taking dance lessons, visiting an old war prison, staying overnight at an eco-lodge, walking around the city, and spending time together. Her family was extremely caring, and they did their best to make sure I felt safe and welcomed. They made all my meals and cleaned my dishes, made my bed, washed my laundry, all while, all while doing the normal house chores. Every time I tried to help them, they insisted I didn't. I felt bad about this and took it upon myself to do my own laundry. After watching the mother do the laundry several times, I learned how to. Tanya's laundry area was tucked in the back of her house. The room was half enclosed by the roof, while half was open to the elements. I would get up early in the mornings with my dirty laundry in tow. I laid my clothes on the washboard and scrubbed them for several minutes. I got a few odd looks from her family for doing this, but I brushed them off. It wasn't until one of my last nights that I understood why. I was taking my clothes off the line and getting my luggage ready to leave. Tanya's aunt, Isis, quietly approached me. Muriel, you know we're clean, right? She jokingly gestured to my clothes. It took me a moment to understand, and a huge sinking feeling came in my stomach. I had been doing my laundry to help their family with chores, and they perceived my actions differently. I had given off the idea that they were not clean or good enough to wash my clothes. I felt horrible. I rushed off to get my Spanish dictionary and hoped to translate what I meant. With Icy's English skills and my Spanish dictionary, she was able to understand. I also had the help of another UU youth who was fluent in Spanish. Isis hugged me, but there still seemed to be some unresolved cultural issues. Neither of us had the skills to communicate, but we connected. That's the thing about cultural learning. The lessons are not about intentions, but what is perceived. My intentions were simply to be nice, but I had offended their family. I think a lot of conflicts are based on cultural differences and intentions that are meant to be good, but the impact is altogether different. Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the Jewish year, begins this Friday night. A holiday of naming our transgressions and choosing to begin again a life of right relationship with ourselves, with others, and with God. This holiday will always be a marker for me of a choice made, of a path taken. 
I was 24 years old and I had lived in Minneapolis for less than one week. I had just started my very first office job. I was living on my own for the first time in a tiny apartment in Uptown. And on a spiritual level, I knew that I was ready to commit to a faith community. But I did not know where, and I did not know with whom. Would I dare attempt to join a Jewish congregation? Or perhaps Unitarian Universalism had something to offer my adult self. Both possible paths made sense in their own way. I grew up with a religious identity of half-Jewish. My dad being Jewish and unobservant, and my mother being a former Methodist and a spiritual seeker. And we discovered Unitarian Universalism when I was in high school. And it was a great place of belonging. It felt like a homecoming in that way. But I was not sure that it was a place of depth and spiritual maturity. I wasn't sure there was any there there. So my first weekend in Minneapolis rolls around, and that Sunday is Yom Kippur. And a work colleague kindly invites me to services with him at a congregation called Shir Tikva. It's in this white building with pillars at 50th and Girard. <laughs> of course, I had no idea that was a former home of this congregation. And I ended up declining his invitation. The prospect of revealing my lack of Jewish education, my lack of observance, scared me too much. And so I decided I would check out Unitarian Universalist congregations that Sunday, and I would save the synagogues for another time. So here was my plan for the morning. First, I would head across the river to the Unitarian Universalist Church in St. Paul for their early service. And then I would return back to my neighborhood for the later service at this big Unitarian Universalist Church at 34th and DuPont. Uh, it actually looked like a synagogue. <laughs> so it seemed like a great combination of both of my identities. So over in St. Paul at that early service, I found myself very moved. It felt like another Unitarian Universalist homecoming experience. And what was it that made it feel that way? Was it a feel-good message? Was it lively music? Was it really good coffee? No. It was confession. It was straight up naming brokenness. My brokenness, everyone's brokenness. And then offering forgiveness and setting the intention to begin again in love. It was this litany of atonement in our hymnal by Rob Eller Isaacs for remaining silent when a single voice would have made a difference. We forgive ourselves and each other and we begin again in love. For each time that our fears have made us rigid and inaccessible, we forgive ourselves and each other, we begin again in love. For each time that our greed has blinded us to the needs of others, 
We forgive ourselves and each other. We begin again in love. And this litany goes on, naming transgressions and failures so familiar to me, so clearly my own, and I also knew that they belonged to everyone else in that sanctuary with me. And then after each naming, also naming the intention to begin again in love. In honoring Yom Kippur, in naming our transgressions, our fallible humanity, and beginning again in love, I knew that there was a there there. I knew that this was a faith tradition I could trust with my soul because it was able to hold this truth about the nature of souls and to respectfully honor Jewish wisdom within a wide theological embrace. So this is the intention I return to every year at this time and every day if I'm awake enough to acknowledge failures and transgressions, my own and those of others, and to begin again in love. That morning I started down the path back to Unitarian Universalism, the faith tradition to which I have ultimately dedicated my life. And just a little P.S. I never made it by my second stop at First Universalist that day. <laughs> I simply kept returning to that first place that had stirred my spirit that morning. But this congregation was still my next stop, a very meaningful and sweet one, a stop where I will spend many years, where I will raise my family. It just took me another decade to get here. A few years ago, I was driving back home from Duluth after a weekend trip with friends. Soon after we embarked on the return trip to the Twin Cities via 35 South, we came upon a traffic standstill. I naively thought that there might be an accident or construction up ahead that would delay us for just a bit. I don't own a cabin up north, so I was not familiar with the Sunday return traffic routine. As the seconds progressed to minutes and minutes progressed to hours of slowly creeping back to the Twin Cities, I could feel the frustration building. Every car that switched lanes in front of me would have me yell out in frustration and pound the steering wheel. Are we ever going to get back to the Twin Cities, I thought. My friends would try to make me laugh or joke around, but I was not going to have any of that. Why couldn't all these idiots just learn how to drive and we would all be back to the Twin Cities in a flash? Now that I look back, I ask, what was the intention I was setting? I look back on this now and I'm shocked by my behavior. I've been thinking a lot about something called fundamental attribution error. Some of you might be familiar with the concept from Psych 101. Fundamental attribution error occurs when we attribute the negative behavior of others to their character, but attribute our own negative behavior to our environment or our circumstances. So let me explain. 
When someone cuts me off in traffic, I say they are a jerk, an idiot, learn how to drive, blank, 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 insert hand gesture. <laughs> but when I cut someone off, it is because I'm late for work, late for that appointment, late for the kids' ball game. I had to confront this tension in my life and examine what it meant for me when someone once said to me as I blew up at someone who cut me off, how do you know they don't have an emergency occurring? I was recently reminded of this concept front and center on a recent trip to Chicago with a friend. As we were picking up our belongings from the security bins, my friend's bin was slightly out of reach, still behind a plastic barrier due to the queue of people picking up their belongings. As my friend repeatedly tried to get her bin out behind the barrier, she focused on a woman taking her time, putting her stuff on, stuff on and loudly said, why can't she take her bin out so that others can get at their bin? Whether the woman heard or not, my friend finally managed to get her bin, grab her bag, and now walk past the woman while accidentally tapping her on the back of her leg with the bin. When I met my friend at the benches to tie my shoes, my friend exclaimed, what a blank, and proceeded to comment on the stranger's character. I've set a new attention for myself these days. My goal is to make room for others in the same way I make room for myself. Now when someone cuts me off in traffic, I say, he needs to get to the hospital. This simple practice, this intention is so freeing. No stress, no anxiety while driving. I just say, they need to get to the hospital. Or in the same manner, maybe the person at the security line just came from the hospital and needs just a little extra time putting her stuff back on. Imagine if we could not only say that we are going to have positive intent, but actually took the time and energy to shift our behavior to demonstrate positive intent. Take the tension out of our intentions. Who will you see today who needs to get to the hospital? Before I tell my story, I, I, I would be a little bit remiss if I didn't mention <clears throat> how proud I am to be able to tell this story and share the stage with my daughter today. Life is full of ironies. I was born July 2nd, 1964, which is the same day the Civil Rights Act was signed into law. I'm sure that President Lyndon Baines Johnson had every intent to outlaw discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, or national origin on that day. But as my grandmother used to say, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. All the well-meaning people just stood there and watched as my mother and aunt wondered who threw the brick through the window of my aunt's new car. 
It was a beautiful, sunny summer day, and my brother and I were playing football in the neighborhood park. This was in Chicago in the early 70s, before the gangs and drug wars invaded our part of the South Side. I would often go outside and play with my friends. As I played sports with my friends, it never occurred to me that I was born on such an historic day. I guess I felt like I was experiencing what LBJ wanted me to feel. Our neighborhood was culturally mixed, my neighbors were white, and the local grocery store was owned and ran by the nicest Polish family. To this day, I remember how kind and genuine they were to my family. However, my beautiful summer day was cut short because my aunt and mother wanted to go shopping on, on the other part of the South Side. My brother and I were too young to leave unattended, so they made us go alone. Part of the convincing us to go was that we would get to ride my aunt's new car, and if we behaved, they would buy us ice cream afterwards. It started out innocent enough, two boys begrudgingly shopping with their mother and aunt at a nice mall in a quiet neighborhood. It appeared that LBJ was meeting his goal. Three hours of shopping were enough, and it was time for my brother and I to get rewarded. <laughs> so we left the mall, and as we walked up to the car, there it was, parked, nice and clean, with a brick through the driver's window. All the people stood and watched as we helped my aunt pull the glass from the driver's seat. A crowd gathered, and I remember the police showing up and telling my aunt, the best thing for our safety was just to leave. No police report, no querying the, the crowd for who might have been the culprit. Of course, there were a few niggers go home, you don't belong here, sprinkled about. I was 10 and I clearly felt the danger of the situation. I could also see a few people in the all-white crowd feeling sympathetic. It was then that I figured out what my grandmother was trying to get across to me. You see, if you don't act on your good intentions, are they really that good? I was the first in my family to be born free. I made my entry into this world late in the evening of April 26, 1967, just three years after the civil rights legislation of 1964 was signed, and two years after the Voting Rights Act extended full voting rights to black citizens. Neither my parents nor any of my siblings had been born free. Only I was born into full legal rights. But the catch was that I was born free in the deep rural South. I remember as a child going to the doctor's offices with my parents. My mother's doctor, Dr. Ramey, was in Greensboro, Alabama. Dr. Ramey also was my doctor. My father's doctor, 
was in Demopolis, our very small, rural, predominantly African-American town had no doctors. What I remember most about those doctor's visits was the waiting rooms. Both Demopolis and Greensboro were predominantly white towns, yet I always only saw black people in the waiting rooms during these visits. We even entered our waiting rooms from a different entry point. Where were the white people, I wondered. I'd seen them outside the doctor's offices in traffic at the Walmart, at McDonald's, but not in these waiting rooms. When I was a teen in the 1980s, I got even more curious about this. One day, while at the Demopolis location, my niece, who's older than me, and I discovered another waiting room. So we decided to explore. We opened the door and went into a much nicer looking, more comfortable space with updated furniture and no people. At first, I wondered why there were no people in this nice room. Then it dawned on me. This was where the white people waited. This was their waiting room, and they were served first. There were no colored signs or white signs, no markers of legal apartheid in the South, but everyone knew the drill. We knew what to do, where to go, what entrance to take, which waiting room to occupy, even in the 1980s and later. We were in de facto segregation. When we figured this out, my niece and I were furious and determined to sit in that room in defiance. My mother eventually found us and fearing for our safety, made us move. We moved out of respect for her, but something deep inside me moved as well. I was moved to a greater level of consciousness. Much of my life's work has been shaped by my growing up years in the segregated South. Much of my life has been cast by this naming. I am the first born free person in my family. My life's intention was set long ago to fight discrimination, segregation, and oppression of all kinds, whether legal, illegal, or de facto. I am here to sing my free life.